0: So we're continuing uh, through our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, which will continue straight through to Easter. And um, this week in this temptation story, we see Jesus um, increasing his um, aggressive assault on evil, um, which kind of began right when he was born, but now is really ramping up here. Because uh, in this story, although Jesus might seem fairly passive, after all, it says uh, in verse 2, he was hungry and the tempter came, so it sounds like he's just... Enduring temptation or that uh, he is kind of just sitting there and the devil comes to him. It may sound that way, but that's not really what's going on here. Um, From the very moment uh, Jesus was born, um, when God came to this planet, he was like a a heat-seeking missile going out after evil. Or to use another analogy, Jesus is coming against Satan like the the running back, uh, Josh Jacobs did, if you saw the Alabama-Oklahoma game, and he just he literally attacked a safety and just knocked the guy down. Like He, he should have gotten targeting probably on the, on the play. But you, can, you sometimes see how a running back will just truck a guy, just go right after him. And that's kind of the way that, that Jesus is coming after Satan here. He's trying to make contact with Satan. This is, this is uh, the spirit shooting Jesus out into the desert. In verse 1 it says he was led, but really it should say that the spirit launched him. Launched him right into the desert. Because the desert has always been the domain of Satan. In the Bible, from the beginning to the end, the desert is both symbolically and maybe even like literally the place where Satan is to be found. And so the big picture here, if you kind of pull back, is the, the Son of God coming to take back his planet. And he is going to overthrow evil incarnate. To use his a, a metaphor in one of his um, parables, he's going to bind the strong man who has kind of taken hold of this particular world we live in. And the combat, obviously, is not physical. This is not like ultimate fighting championship. It's mental. It's spiritual. It's the kind of combat that was going on between Adam and Satan in the garden, which is kind of like a rematch in some ways of what happened back then. So a lot of echoes back to Genesis, Genesis... Where um, you have the combat between uh, Adam and Eve and Satan, and and humanity lost in that one, but now in the rematch, humanity wins. But whenever you're tempted, there's that, um, there's like a spiritual, mental, emotional um, battle with the temptation. It could be the temptation to eat something, or drink something, or consume something, or do something with someone, or say something, or not say something. But in this case, and, and kind of the heart of a lot of temptation, is just the, uh, the doubt about God, and God's goodness, and God's love. And whether uh, you're safe, whether you're okay, whether things are spiraling out of control, if things are not right. Um, there's that basic temptation to trust, or to deep anxiety. And that's what's going on here, in these temptations... And I want to look at the temptations and also how Jesus wins this victory. Because in the end, he is the victor uh, in this um, battle royale with Satan. So the the temptations themselves, and we'll spend most of the time on that, and how that applies to us. And then number two, um, the the victory that he wins over the tempter. So again, it says that um, he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And right there... You know, some of you might have stopped listening very closely, because when you heard that word, the devil, uh, it was kind of a stretch. It was kind of tough to believe in that. I'll never forget when I was telling my brother, my atheist brother, that I had become a Christian. We were driving to Pauly's Island, South Carolina, and the more I talked, the more he became agitated and didn't like what I was saying. As he realized more and more, like, I believed in God, that was bad enough, but miracles... And then he came to this point in a Bojangles in South Carolina where he got so agitated, he said, please tell me that you don't believe in the devil. And I said, no, I believe in that too. And uh, it, it really bothered him. And I understand that because um, if the shoe were on the other foot and he were converting to Christianity, I would have felt the same way. There's something about that idea, like we can handle God and even maybe Jesus in the incarnation, but something about the devil just seems cartoonish and implausible. But if we have any respect for the story here of Matthew, I mean, he's clearly depicting something that is not symbolic. This is not just a symbol for evil. This is an agent with with a mind and a will. He's very clever. Um, This is not like someone with a pitchfork and horns and a tail and a red suit. The the culture portrays Satan in kind of a, like I said, like a cartoon character. And so it's very easy not to believe in him because of that very reason. But this is a very sophisticated, complex, evil genius. And he is a twister of words and he's a sower of discord. That's what's going on here. And that's what you can expect in your life when you're facing the devil. Again, not so much violence or a lot of blood or like the exorcist where that little girl's head spins around. That is not what the devil does. This is more like an emotionally manipulative boss or a coach or a pastor or an abusive parent, verbally abusive. That's more like what the devil does. And notice the tactics here. He's debating. He's coming at... He's like jabbing uh, at Jesus with these words. He's persuasive. He is accusing. Uh, he is insinuating doubt. He is confusing. He's quoting scripture. Uh, he's actually manipulating scripture. But um, you don't want to get in a verbal battle with the devil. But when you also are weaponizing your words Um, when you lie and humiliate and accuse and manipulate and cut down people you're joining him that's his work and so at a family dinner table or an office party or a bedroom um, you say these things Uh, it's not just that you got anxious or you were tired or sleepy that might be a factor but essentially you're you're following uh, in the path of evil that stuff's evil it's not just bad brain chemistry or bad upbringing or genes. It's, it's, it's evil. And so you've got to name evil for what it is. And that's why the word devil is used. Or Actually, three words are used here. Tempter, that's one description of him. Uh, satan is another. That was the one used in Genesis 3 back in the garden. Uh, the Hebrew word there is the accuser or the Satan or the Satan. And so you see that in verse 10. The accuser, Satan... And then the final one in verse five, eight, and thirteen, of course, is the devil. I mean, who knows which of these is his proper name? I have no idea. But it does tell you that his his three tasks, if not more, at least three are. Um, there's temptation there. There is accusation there, and there is this uh, splitting. The, the word diabolos in Greek means to split. It's from a verb meaning to split. And so if you think about the devil, um, you think of him like a block splitter, like one of those wedges. You might know those little tools that you, uh, they're like a little iron wedge, they call a maul, M-A-U-L. And you kind of put them between crevices in a log and you slam down the maul with a sledgehammer and it deepens its wedge in the wood and it begins to break it apart slowly. And so you can see here the, the kind of the, the crack widening in a sense. Um, or at least the devil wants it to, between Jesus and his father. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to slam that mall down farther and farther into the wood to, to break them apart. And I know that, um, that I in my life uh, have felt at times like I'm being split apart from someone. Um, sometimes it's, um, it's the person you love the most, often it's the person you love the most. And um, you just harbor negative thoughts. Negative thoughts whose source you may not know exactly, but you can feel your soul kind of dividing from them, and maybe you just, you're chewing on past grievances. That's the work of the splitter. And you meditate on their character flaws, and you minimize your character flaws. And it gets to the point where if he's really, really good, and he's really, really got you in the place he wants you, then you actually get upset if you hear about their repentance. I don't know if you've ever gotten to that place, but... You actually don't want to hear that they are changing for the better. You want to hear they're changing for the worst. And that's when the devil is really working. When he's splitting you apart from people. He can even split you apart from yourself, within your soul. In this case, he's trying to split Jesus from the Father. And so in verse 3, he says, if you are the Son of God. And in verse 6, if you are the Son of God. He's trying to Put that iron tip into the mind of Christ and just slam it down and divide him from his identity as the son of God. He says in verse 3, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's the first temptation. And it's not a temptation I've ever had to turn stones into bread. But in this case with Jesus, it's what the devil knows is the first way to get into his mind. And uh, I think what he is saying here is to Jesus, if you're really so powerful, if you're really the Son of God, then you could do all this stuff on your own. You don't need to rely upon God. Why wait for the Father to give you bread? You're starving 40 days without food, and, and your Father is still not giving you any food. This is your time to act apart from Him. Why be so weak and so dependent and so reliant on God? And the temptation here, I think, is that Essentially, uh, the Father is holding things back, which is a, a temptation I think we've all felt before, that the, that God, our Father, is holding things back from us. In the first temptation, the devil suggests that it's food. He's holding back food. In the second one, it's protection. So think about whether you've ever thought that God is holding back, whether it's food or maybe it's just the money you need, uh, rent, something like that, and you think to yourself, God is definitely holding things back for me. Or protection is the second one. Or the third one is fame and uh, applause, all the nations bowing down to him. And these are the ways that the devil is trying to get into Jesus' mind and break him apart from the Father. In Matthew 3.16, Jonah preached on this last week. The Father made this very loud and certain declaration, public declaration, with uh, visual effects... That Jesus was indeed his beloved son. And so it says in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were open. Whatever that means, the spirit, I'm sure there was something visual about that. The spirit of God descended on him like a dove. So there's some, again, there's a visual element to this spirit coming down. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That just happened. And then immediately the Spirit sends them out of the desert. And what does Satan do if you're the Son of God? Are you really well-loved? Are you, are you really pleasing to the Father? Is he not holding something back from you? And this is essentially what he did, what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, he kind of poisoned their mind. That's what one theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, calls this. He calls it the poison of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the poison of Eden. And he says, in the the Garden of Eden, the serpent persuaded Eve that God was possessed of a narrow and restrictive spirit bordering on the malign. Like he was malignant, a little bit malignant. Like there's something in God that is not really for you. That he does not really have your best interest in mind. Ferguson continues, Satan diverted Eve's gaze... Away from God's superabundant plenty. God said you can have any tree you want in the whole garden. They're all good for you. They're beautiful. They're delicious. You can have any of them. And yet Satan turns her thoughts and fixes her gaze on the one negative command. He's like, God is holding something back from you. God does not want your flourishing. Ferguson says, what kind of God would deny you pleasure and joy if he really loved you? He allows you nothing and demands everything from you. I mean, notice that Jesus is not tempted by um, money, sex, or drugs. We usually think of temptation as like those things. That has, that's not, Satan didn't, you know, trot those things out before. They, they would have absolutely no effect on him at all. What apparently is tempting to Jesus is that uh, God is holding something back from him. Whether it's food, protection, fame, something that, that Jesus needed more. So again, verse 3, command these stones to become bread. Verse 6, throw yourself down from the top of the temple and the angels will bear you up. Whether that was literally the top of the temple or he had a vision, I don't know. I don't think it matters. Uh, verse 8, staggering fame and popularity, a very high mountain. All the kingdoms of the world will be given to you. They will all worship you. In a way, these are not bad things. Food protection and popularity. Not bad things. But the point here is that Satan is whispering, you know, it's really nice that God said you're his beloved son and all that stuff about well-pleasing, but but really, what has he done for you lately, Jesus? Why are you out here in the desert now, burning hot and starving and clearly uncared for? Why don't you just do it on your own and just forget about him? You know, I have had... um, in ministry, in the time I've been in ministry, my life was great before I became a pastor. And then I became a pastor. I've had panic attacks, seizures, heart attacks, my wife's being treated for cancer. And many of you have had worse. And it's like, this can't be right. And there's no way. This is, not, this is not the life of this is my beloved son with who I'm well pleased. This does not feel like that life. My son uh, and his friend have been playing this game called BitLife. I don't know how they found it. It's one of those apps I think they just continually search for apps that are interesting. But um, they were playing on on the car ride back from there to Charlotte and back. And I looked it up because it was so amusing what they were saying to one another. And this is the description of the app. Will you become a model citizen, happily married with kids and a good job, or will you horrify your parents and descend into a life of crime, start prison riots, smuggle duffel bags and cheat on your spouse. And so you make decisions every single moment of this game to see which way you're gonna go. And the, ga- the game ends with a gravestone, and there's an obituary written on the gravestone. And uh, the other night, uh, Zach was saying, I've died four times, Cooper, and only once have I become a model citizen of the four times that I died. So the, the point is you're trying to get to be the good American dream, right, the, the good life. And Satan would say to you, you know, where is that, ha- where is that happy family that, uh, that you were promised? Where is the American dream? Where is that large automobile? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> my God, what have I done? That's uh, from the talking heads. Uh, once in a lifetime. But God says, uh, no, you are the beloved son. Or you're the beloved daughter. You're pleasing. Whether you're suffering Whether you feel deprivation and want, I can't explain that. God doesn't seem to need to explain that to us. But the point is he's saying in that place of great discomfort, uh, you're still beloved and you're still very pleasing. And the reality is that I am crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And uh, the life I live now, I live by faith in him who loves me. And gave himself for me. And that's who I am. i am I am one with him. and that's what i that's what I hold on to, that the the one who fought Satan for me, and I are one now, uh, because of my faith in him. And at some point, you can't really argue with Satan. Um, you can't get into his twisted logic or into his mindset. You can't really disprove his accusations. He's so clever. At some point, all you can do is what Martin Luther did to Satan, um, which was just say, be gone. You know, get out of here. I command you in the the power and the name of Jesus to be gone. And that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 10. Be gone, Satan. You are defeated. You have lost. And we say, uh, Christ has conquered you. And you are not my master. And that begins to move into the second point now, which is... um, how we actually appropriate the victory of Christ because he, he passed through this test and now we in him can also have victory because we are united to him. And so that's the second point is the nature of the victory of Christ. And the notice that he, um, he uses the Bible it seems like a very simple weapon. If you're fighting Satan in mortal combat, it does not seem like the thing you would turn to would be the Bible This very simple book uh, that you can get for almost nothing. That, you know, they're just lying around all over the place. And people have way more of them than they they ever read. Uh, But that apparently is the weapon that uh, Jesus himself, who is the Son of God, uses to fight Satan. That he relies as a human on the Bible. Because he says uh, in verse 4, it is written. In verse 7, it is written. And then in verse 10, it is written. Of course, he doesn't have the New Testament. He has the Old Testament. But still, it's, it's the Scriptures. It's the writings from God. It is, the revelation of, it is the revelation of who God is, of what God is like. And so I think one thing that we need to take from this is that if we don't really know the Bible very well, then it's kind of like you're, you've got one uh, arm tied behind your back and you're trying to fight left-handed or something like that, or right-handed. right handed and uh, you, you have a, you have a, you're at a great disadvantage to not know what God says about who God is and who you are and what reality is like. Because you've got to know the, the, the Bible, the essence of what is true, to fight off lies. You know, in any good counseling, if you're talking to a counselor, what they've got to do to you is tell you truth to fight off lies. But where do we as believers find truth? We believe it's in the scriptures. And so... Um, You've got to know the scriptures and not just superficially, because Satan actually knows it superficially. And so he quotes it. And it's very interesting that Satan himself quotes the scripture in verse six. So it's obviously not enough just to know a kind of the words themselves. You've got to know the meaning under the words. You've got to know the principles under the meanings. And so Satan says to Jesus, uh, throw yourself down in verse six. He says, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. And He's insinuating here that uh, that God will always protect your physical life, no matter what you do. That's kind of the way He is misapplying this scripture. Um, throw yourself down, and He will He will definitely keep you up. Um, no matter what you do, He's going to protect your physical life. He's going to keep you safe. And Jesus says in response in verse 7, You shall not put the Lord to the test. In other words, I'm not going to demand my Father's physical protection. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that you're always going to be uh, safe, and you're always going to be healthy, and you're always going to have enough to live on. That is not a promise of the Bible. And it's really sad how people actually claim these things as promises in the Bible that are not promises, because they don't know what the Bible says. And so whether it be health or positive thinking or wealth or long life, if you think that that is what the Bible has promised you, um, then you're going to be subject to temptation. You're going to be easy pickings for the devil. He's going to, he's going to tie your mind up uh, like a pretzel. And you're not going to know how to come back at him at all. Um, he will make you believe fake promises or he will make you not believe true promises. So, for instance, if you don't know that God has promised you uh, unconditional forgiveness and absolutely free grace forever. If you don't know that and you begin to kind of revert to your old sinful habits. And you start to backslide, as Christians sometimes call it, or move back into old ways. And, and, and you begin to think, um, I couldn't be a Christian now. Uh, the Bible says I should never do this stuff again. This must mean I never was saved. And you'll begin to doubt God because you don't know what the, the Bible says about the fact that um, that kind of thing is to be expected. Um, that Paul, towards the end of his life, says I am the, I, he still says, I am the chief of sinners. And that God's grace never ends. And that once you're justified, you can never not be justified. Um, if you don't believe those things or know those promises, then you're going to be picked off uh, by the devil. Or, the most pertinent here is if you don't know that Christ has come as a person, as a human, and fought the temptation for you. And if you don't know that he has already won that victory for you, then you're going to be very uh, defeatist in your mindset. When temptation comes and you give in, you're going to give up the fight and just say, uh, nothing could ever change. I could never be better because I'm all on my own. I am all alone, me against the devil, and I have no chance of winning that battle. And we get there a lot. But the the great promise of the passage here is that um, not that that you have power or strength in yourself. That is not the promise of the passage. The promise is that, that Christ has all the power and all the strength. And he's outside of you, and he's your hero, and he fights for you. And that he's one with you, and he'll never leave you. I read a book in seminary that was a very um, important book, not for me only, but also for the history of Christian thought. Um, it's by a, a guy named Gustav Aulén, A-U-L-E-N, and it's called Christus Victor, written in 1931. And in his day um, in Scandinavia, he thought that the the church had lost what the cross was about. and And he thought that the early church really focused on the victory of Christ, as the essence of the cross. And so he says, quote, the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin and death and the devil. And I think that's exactly what God is doing here, that this is God becoming a mortal to defeat Satan for you to win the victory. This is about victory in Christ. It's, um, it's Again, it's not about you or me. It's about this man who is um, incredibly weak. He's got to be uh, kind of just sunburned to the point of deep pain. I mean, living out in these desert hills for 40 days, assuming that really happened for uh, that much time... I mean, um, you can't imagine how weak. and I, I mean, your mind would be so cloudy, too, in your thoughts. And yet, tempted in every way like we are, he, um, he by himself locks, in, locks horns with Satan and defeats him. Resists all these lies with the loving truth of God's scripture. And essentially, he wins the rematch. He wins the rematch. And now, because of that, we can boast in him that we have won. That we also have won. It's like when, when Israel saw David go out to attack Goliath, none of the Israelites were brave enough to go fight Goliath. Not even the king. They were all cowering in fear. And here's David, this shepherd boy, and he goes out with a mere slingshot. And he takes on the you know, 12-foot Philistine giant, Goliath, with all his armor. And he destroys him. And as soon as he destroys Goliath and decapitates him, all of Israel raises up their spears and said, we won. We've defeated them. And it's the same thing with us. It's kind of ridiculous to say this, but um, we obviously had nothing to do with it. But in Christ, we have won the victory. It's like when uh, Wake Forest beat uh, Texas in the NCAA tournament. I think it was like 30 years ago now. I don't know if we've won in that many years. But I remember in a bar in um, Hilton Head, I yelled out when the shot went and we won. You know, we won. And I, I was a thousand miles away from wherever that game was played. I had nothing to do with the outcome at all. And yet I, correctly, identifying so much with Wake Forest, say we won. And so when Christ won this battle, um, in the same way we can, we can vicariously take hold of his victory and say we won. That as a human, we as him with him, we won the battle. And so we can never say again that I cannot resist the temptation that is upon me. You can't say that anymore because, because the tempter has been defeated once and for all. We so often walk around like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh with our heads hanging down, a defeatist mindset. You know, Winnie the Pooh greets Eeyore cheerfully and says, Good morning, Eeyore. And then Eeyore gloomily replies, Good morning, if it is a good morning, which I doubt. And, you know, we say, uh, yeah, it's great that Jesus won the battle against Satan, but that was a long time ago, and maybe he didn't even do anything. Maybe that has nothing to do with me and my life. And that's why we need something from outside of us. Um, We're not strong enough internally to defeat Satan, but uh, he gives us these elements which are... Not just words. I mean, I'm speaking words, and that's coming from outside of you and going into your ears, and that's good. But more than words, he gives you uh, bread and wine. He says, I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to really give you uh, something real and tangible, undeniable, you know, scientifically verifiable reality to put into you and say, this really happened, so that you will not doubt and this is really the final victory over the last temptation. You know, the, the, the last temptation was where um, Satan comes to Jesus in the garden. And he says, you can, you can let that cup pass from you. You don't need to do that. There's another way this can happen. You don't have to suffer. And that's where Jesus is really the most tempted. And you know what he says. He says... Uh, not my will, Father, that yours be done. And in doing so, he defeats Satan forever. And now, from that point on, um, we have this victory. And it's really, it's really hit me this week just that, um, that God is a human, even now. Um, that, that God is still, Jesus is still a human. And that God is always going to be a God who is a human and will always be for us. He couldn't not be for us because he is a human. And it's just really, I don't know, it's kind of been fascinating to think, it's, it's kind of obvious in a way, but sometimes we forget that God and humanity are still one in Christ. That's still going on right now. And so how could he not be for us? I mean, are you going to stop being human? You know, no. Is Jesus going to stop being human for you? No. Is he going to stop winning the victory? Ever no. No. So there's there's no way we can lose in the long term. I mean, there's going to be setbacks, but uh, the meal gives us great confidence that um, in Christ we have won the victory. And, and I always like to say we don't want um, we don't want to cheapen this meal or act like it's just a symbol or something like that. We really believe there's power here, and we also know that people come here and they're not really sure what to do with this meal because every part of the service is kind of open to everyone up to this point but at this point you know there's no reason to to do this if uh if you don't believe these things it wouldn't make sense to do that we we want people to come here who who are still searching we're not sure what they believe and we don't want to be exclusive we also don't want to force anyone into hypocrisy and so every person is welcome to this table but do so with a clean conscience And not because you feel peer pressure. Nobody's going to be watching who takes and who doesn't take. Um, But um, have integrity. Um, Be true to yourself in whether you take this or not. But again, the grace is free. Uh, It's unconditional. All are welcome. All have won um, this victory with Christ. And so um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed... It was not the night where um, he came in Jerusalem and they